0: Welcome to Founder Stories, the podcast, conversations with David Adelsheim and the 10 founding wine families of Oregon's North Willamette Valley. During each episode, David Adelsheim, founder of Adelsheim Vineyard, will sit down with another early pioneer to recount the collaboration and formation of the Willamette Valley wine industry over the last 50 years. Today, David sits down with Myron Redford, founder of Amity Vineyards. Enjoy.
1: Fresh out of college in the summer of 1966, Myron Redford and a couple of friends found themselves hitchhiking from Istanbul to London. They ended up in Bulgaria looking for a hostel. Did I mention that Myron had an ulcer and had been told no alcohol? But their guide was pouring shots of Slivovitz, and no thanks wasn't going to work. The next morning, after a long night of Slivovitz shots, Myron was fine. So much for the no alcohol policy. On October 7th, 2020, we caught up with Myron at Amity Vineyards, overlooking the original vineyard he had purchased from Jerry and Ann Preston in 1974. Thanks for opening up the vineyard for us today. In the sense of contacting Ryan and kind of agreeing to make this happen, um, the the vineyards behind you are some of the original vines that uh, were planted even before you arrived here.
2: Yes, um, in the flats there, <clears throat> uh, there's uh, about three. Acres of Pinot down there that was planted by Jerry and Ann
1: Preston. What year would
2: have that been? Uh, They started planting in 71. Yeah. They bought the place in 1970. And they started in 71. And I think I first met them in
1: 72. But before we jump into your coming here, I think there's a backstory before that uh, because... You were in Ankara, Turkey, and you were told you you shouldn't have any alcohol. Okay,
2: before I get into that story, yes I want to say, David, that one of the things that we're talking about here is the early industry and what was the most important thing in the early industry cooperation, and we're all will hang together or we'll all hang separately. And I think what you're doing here is a prime example of that instead of just going, oh, that you said, I want to set the
1: context and you're sharing with the industry. Thank
2: you, David. Yeah. Thank
1: you. yeah. Um, thanks for recognizing it. It's our staff that came up with the idea. I said, yeah, sure. But Congratulations, you guys! You're
2: carrying on the <laughs> tradition of us old farts. <laughs>
1: so, so we were talking about perhaps um, uh, stomach issues that told uh, that led your doctors to say you shouldn't have alcohol.
2: Right when I, I was uh, studying at uh, Middle East Technical University in 1966 in Ankara, in Ankara, Turkey, and at what
1: age? Excuse me? What age? Uh,
2: 21. Turned 21 in July of 66. So I had got an ulcer. So I was on a what was then an ulcer diet, a lot of dairy and stuff. So then my friend uh, George Goodman and Paul Silverman came down from uh, France and uh, Germany where they'd been studying and met me. And we were going to hitchhike from Ankara, Turkey, to London, England together. I won't go into all the details, but the important part is while we were in Bulgaria, we got lost in this town in the evening. And a gentleman put us on a way out of town to try and take us to a tourist camp, but we didn't know that. But anyway. Your Bulgarian wasn't? Up to speed? No. And in his language, I mean, between the two of us, we spoke French, German, Hebrew, Turkish, and English. None of them worked. Uh, he had about three words of German. So, anyway, so communication wasn't the thing. But in the end, we ended up in a tourist camp and we were so relieved. And he was so relieved that. We understood he wasn't trying to rob us, that he insisted we have a drink. And as you can imagine, trying to turn down a drink for a Bulgarian who has just done all this for you was impossible. So I drank it. And of course, as soon as I drank one, he went and got others and da-da-da. The importance of this is it showed me that I. the next morning I, I said... I can drink alcohol, I my ulcer must be cured or so forth. So that started um, my adventure into uh, wine. Um, first, I tried some Bulgarian white wines. Then we went to Romania, tried many different wines. Then... Up through Yugoslavia and into uh, Vienna, Austria, where George has aunts and cousins. And we went to the Höring Horingen? Höringen. Your German's better in mine. Uh, where you the little vineyards outside of Austria where they you go and, and uh, drink the young wine. It's sort of like a white nouveau. They
1: that, d- that's gotta be a real trial for a person with an ulcer
2: yes <laughs> by that time by that time Dave I was sure that my ulcer was cured or but uh, um, so anyway the important thing in terms of my being here in Oregon is that on that trip um, I fell in love with wine and in Germany while we were on the Mosul um I got my first experience in terroir, uh, drinking at one ghost house, their tough wine, table wine, wonderful, 30 kilometers up the Mosul Valley, stopping at another place, garbage. I mean, just, and I said to George, how can the same grape that's only 30 kilometers away be good here and bad there? And Anyway, that started my search into wine and it
1: continued. And that was still a number of years before you ended up here in Amity, Oregon. Yes. I mean you grew up in Seattle area, right?
2: Yes. I was uh in Seattle and after the time and I graduated from Antioch College in 68 and came back to Seattle and after a while got a job at the University of Washington. I was assistant to the vice provost for academic affairs. And while I was there, um, I started taking trips to the Napa Valley to continue my exploration of wine. And so I was very interested in wine. And my mother was a research librarian, and we were having lunch in the faculty club and uh, i heard these guys at the next table talking about vinifera wine in washington state well in uh 19 uh, was it 69 or 70 1970 the only wine you could get in the state of washington in grocery stores was washington wine and it makes noico seem like chateau latour um so I, I I just interrupted them and I said, "Guys, what, what's this? What are you saying? Winemaking wine in Washington State?" And they, and they said, "Yes, yeah, we've been making wine at Associated Vintners for uh, four years." I said, "Really?" And they said, "Well, come on out. Associated Vintners was founded by a group of university professors, and they." started out as an amateur group and ended up um, having to turn commercial because they bought a vineyard and it
1: produced too many grapes. So anyway... Um, and, and just to finish that story, it became Columbia Winery at some right. point. Yeah. Yes, yeah.
2: But anyway, the the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, Lloyd Woodburn, was the winemaker. The head of chemistry department was the chemist.
1: They better not have had any instabilities in the wine, right? Right.
2: <laughs> and you didn't want to mess with them legally because the head of the law school. Was <laughs> so anyway, I ended up, David. I ended up working with them off and on for about two and a half years. And one year, uh, unfortunately, Boeing went down uh, worse than it is now, and uh, I lost my job at the University of Washington. And so I worked for AV almost a full year. And um, so I began to get the bug, not just for loving wine, but wanting to make it. And that's where it started. By the time I was uh, um, had been there two years, I started buying dairy tanks to, to do fermentations and stuff. And I was really hooked.
1: And were you... During that time with Associated Vintners, were you involved in the winemaking?
2: Yes, that it? yes. I when I arrived in in, in Oregon in '74, I had a lot of experience in the cellar. I had no experience in the vineyard.
1: So you're in Seattle, as 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 I've heard from you, you had a piece of property. On the Olympic Peninsula in Port, Port Townsend. Townsend. Yes, that's
2: where I was going to plant grapes and put my winery because I had a barn we were going to convert.
1: This is not Port Townsend. You you know, although the fog is sort of similar to... Well, the clouds have lifted, yeah. so perhaps... Well, Go yeah.
2: Um No. What basically happened is um, a friend of my mother's gave me a reference to visit Jerry and Ann Preston, who bought Amity Vineyards in 1970, planted it in 1971. This vineyard right here that we were talking about earlier. Uh, To make a long story short, uh, Jerry and Ann got divorced, had to sell the vineyard. So when I came here in 73, they weren't here. I didn't know how I was going to get my grape plants that I had bought from Jerry Fort Port Townsend then he calls me several months later and says hey your grape plants are here when are you going to pick them up and I said okay I'll come down and pick them up and we came down and that was uh, happened to be the time on the weekend that they the North what were they called the North Willamette Valley but,
1: no it was the Oregon Viticultural Development Committee Oregon
2: Development Committee invited Ralph Kunkke up from uh, UC Davis to talk about sterile bottling of German white wines. And the whole industry was there. I mean, everybody. I mean, the whole industry could fit in this room. (laughs) And so I got, I was just, here I was, this young kid, maybe 23, um, 24. And I'm in this room with all the founders of this industry. And then after we, the lecture, we went out and drank. And then we went and drank a little more, became more friends. And and uh, the next morning, we went around and compared hangovers with Charles Corey. And uh, um, I can't remember. I think, well, maybe Erath. I was just in this wonderful experience of, of seeing the whole industry at one time. And it really... Uh, made an impression uh, when we got back to the vineyard to pick up the grape plants. Um, three Mercedes pulled up, black Mercedes. Every, every guy that got out was named Paul. That just blew my mind. And so I was digging up the plants, and Jerry's talking to them, and I said, Jerry, you told me you'd sold the vineyard. He said... Well, the sale fell through. I said, Oh, well, uh, could I make you an offer? He said, Well, I didn't think you had the capacity. And without going into all the gruesome details of uh, banking at that time. Or and, lack you know, thereof. What? Or lack thereof. A lack thereof. You know, they didn't loan on out of state property, they didn't loan if the security wasn't in their county. So, my mother, without me asking her, this is very important because my mother was a depression child, uh, no credit card until she couldn't rent a car when she was in her 70s. She just said, my okay, I'll mortgage the house. My God, mom, you're going to do that? She said, yeah. So we... Um, Got the money from the mortgage and myself and my partner at the time, Janice Chekia moved here in May of 1974. I had $10,000 that my brother who had had died in 73 had left to me and this property. And I built that winery behind you there Uh, in 1976 for $15,000, plus the winery equipment that I had with it. And nobody could believe it because even back then it was astounding. I mean, we were down here taking apart chicken coops for the aluminum for the roof, (laughs) which ended up getting changed when a uh, tornado came down right in this parking lot and tore the upper section of the roof off. And so, anyway. So this is not the original roof? No, no. <laughs> so anyway, my brother and I visited Domaine Caneros. Uh, no, not Domain Can- The one that's connected with Mum, David. Oh, it's Domaine Mum, yeah. 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 And we were watching, and the degorging process was going on, and Steve says, Myron, look at that. They put the bottles on their head, they get all the sediment, and then they open the the crown, and it just goes out. He says, we're going to do that with all our wines. He says, because, you know, we're trying to impress the girls when they come by, and we take out our beautiful old wines, and the sediment gets there, and they go, hey, good night. So anyway, so I've stored my wine on a cork ever since, and this is the process and as i always tell people i've never had a problem with it until i was in front of 300 wine riders in Newburgh, and my finger slipped and i put it all up and down myself so okay this by the way is uh, the first bottle of gamay i ever made which is the first gamay in Probably in the U.S. Yes. True Gamay. Nice. There we go. And you didn't get it on your pants. Yeah. So let's see, David. This is from 1988. 1988 Gamay Noir. Gamay Noir. Everybody knows that Gamay is an early
1: grape and doesn't age. Pretty nice. Yeah, it is. It's really Gamay-like. Yeah. I mean, it. It's the, the thing that drives me crazy often with Gamay's in Oregon is that they often are so tannic. Yeah. This is, this is, if it was tannic when it was young, it's aged out of it now.
2: Yeah, it only took 40, see, 88, 12, 22 years. Yeah, that's great.
1: Thank you for being willing to open that.
2: That's my next to the last bottle. The last bottle is over there. So, My pleasure. Thank you. What a great thing.
1: Uh, this is really part of a story of, there's a a central story about the wine industry that has to do with particularly Pinot Noir. Mm-hmm. Also has to do with, with several white grapes, mm-hmm. certainly Chardonnay originally, and then Pinot Gris, and then a number of other white grapes, and now back to Chardonnay. You weren't content with just a variety or a couple of varieties. I mean, you you went first in the direction of Nouveau, and then when Gamay became available, you went in that direction. Yes. So. What was your thinking on that? I don't know. A lot of it probably was just,
2: oh, that tastes good. Let's try that. Um, but back in those days, everybody told us that Gewürz Treminer was a very early ripening grape, which is nonsense. Um, so I decided to, we had a little bit of Gewürz here, and, and people had a lot out there and offered it. And, uh, so we we already had Riesling here, we had Chardonnay here, um, Riesling, Chardonnay, Pinot Noir, we had Cabernet, we had... That was Jerry's planting? Yeah, Jerry planted a phenological block, you had one at your vineyard also, so um, we had an acre of 30 varietals, five, six plants each, but on Cabernet he had done a larger planting, a row and a half, and... So forth, and then up up the road, the guy that was living there uh, had got, wanted Cabernet, and so I got his grapes. So we made, my brother Steve was with me from uh, 78 until about 81, and his love was Cabernet, so he made Cabernet under his Redford Cellars label, and uh, then when he left, I made one Cabernet under the Amity label. And then the the next uh, group grape initiative was the Gamay. Um, in 1987, OSU released the French clones, and uh, I had been on the panel evaluating the wines from the different clones. Uh, because everybody, you know, French, oh, yeah, we want that. Yes, it's French. And as we found out, several of the clones were not particularly appropriate. And some people think the ones that we chose are a little heavy-bearing and so forth. You mentioned uh Anyway, uh, so that's the wine that I have here, and that's Gamay. And then I was... Um, I was always a bit of an iconoclast, and I decided, I think it was in 88, about the same time as this, that I wasn't going to use any new oak anymore, because I felt that back then, people were over-oaking their wines, and at the same time, I said, you know, I don't i don't want to have these Chardonnay with all that oak in it. So I drafted all the Chardonnay over to Pinot Blanc here. Now you and uh, John Paul at Cameron and Ponzi—they Well, they have it now. So maybe yeah. they had it that early. I don't. know. Yeah. Anyway, you we're all the early <laughs> pioneers. But I formed a, a Pinot Noir promotion group. Pinot Blanc. Pinot Blanc. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, I remember our slogan was Blancs have more fun. <laughs> That's uh, right. They're t-shirts. Yeah, yeah, we made t-shirts. I did that for about two years and then I I ran out of energy and nobody else wanted to. But anyway, I got really invested in Pinot Blanc and we uh, made Pinot Blanc. And then in 2006 or uh Liz Dodd and, not Liz Dodd, uh, Liz, Liz, uh, anyway, Liz and Darcy were my assistant winemakers and they wanted to make Chardonnay. So we started making a little bit of Chardonnay in seven or eight.
1: You know, uh, mentioning the blocks have more fun reminded me of the Steamboat Conference. And um, we were latecomers to the Steamboat Conference. We didn't participate until the third year. But you were there in the first year, right? I I was part of the group that... So uh, who was that group, and what really is the Steamboat Conference thing?
2: Well, uh, the key person who unfortunately has died is uh, Steve Carey, who was the winemaker at... uh, Oh, uh, Yamhill Valley. Valley for a long time. Before that, he was uh, he was the first distributor of Oregon wines nationally. Broker, yes, yeah, uh, and uh, he had he had uh, he'd take like I think one thing we had it seventeen winemakers on a trip. Can you <laughs> imagine? It was like herding cats, but he. He did this incredible promotion for Oregon Wine Nationally. Anyway, um, he
1: and... Uh, um, Mike Richmond, Mike Richmond, And the guy from the... Jim something from the port place? Oh, Olson. Jim Olson. Jim Olson from... Yeah. Uh, became the port works.
2: Yeah. Um, and then the restaurant fellow in, that had the restaurant in Northwest Portland... Bill McLaughlin? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. They were a group, and and that's where the idea originated from their sort of tasting together. Then he came out and started talking to the industry. And at that time, he was working for Annie Hinsdale, and I was one of those wineries.
1: What was the idea that was put into practice that year, 1979? What we
2: wanted to do is to get Pinot Noir winemakers from all around, from everywhere, not just Oregon. So I think the first one we had winemakers from Oregon and California. And I think there may have been one French, but I'm not sure. And the original concept was we were going to have one year in Oregon, the next year in California and move back and forth. The California part of it didn't work out. And everybody loves, Steamboat is a small resort on uh, the North umcoa River, just uh, 40 miles east of uh, Roseburg. Gorgeous place. And guess what? It just happened to have fly fishing. And guess what? All of those people I mentioned, who were Steve, Gary, and friends, were all fly fishermen. <laughs> so fly fishing ended up bringing the, uh, the winemakers together at Steamboat. The center focus was no press was allowed. And it was sort of like an AA meeting in the sense that everybody could confess their sins. And people were encouraged to bring bad wine. Because the the thing wasn't to have a beauty contest. It was to learn how to make better Pinot Noir. And I remember the year that the Californians came up and introduced the concept of adding acid to Pinot Noir in the fermenter. Before this, California and, and Oregon were letting the grapes hang to get the ripeness. And then when they went through malolactic, the pHs were so high that the wines looked like this. And they were, <laughs> and all of us Oregon purists, <gasps> adding acid. Now everybody does, except me. I, I got my grapes from cool sites, and so I only added acid, I think, once in 40 years. Wow. And I know you and I were on a panel in uh, the LCBO had a uh, Pinot Liquor Noir. Control Board in Ontario. Yeah, you you got up and talked about how you make Pinot, and then I got up and I said said the opposite, basically. <laughs> yeah, 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 I mean our two approaches were, and it 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 highlighted the diversity of approaches to Pinot Noir that exists in the state, and it also highlighted that the source the locations where you get your
1: grapes from also influence how you make the wine. The Steamboat Conference in many ways is, I I think, contributed two two important ingredients to the industry. One was the collaboration. Once people started finding out about this, that it was this opportunity to learn, they wanted to be part of it. And, And virtually every American winemaker who's known for Pinot went through Steamboat at one point or another. Yeah. That was expanded in 1987 when the French started coming to IPNC, the International Pinot Noir Celebration. Mm -hmm. And they were invited to Steamboat the week before that. Mm -hmm. And many of them came. And that expanded the Steamboat Conference from just being Oregon and California to being quite international, people from New Zealand, from Canada, from... Yeah, pretty much everyone.
2: Interesting point uh, on uh, in terms of my influence in the industry. I was the one that uh, told Larry McKenna, who was a winemaker yeah, in uh, uh, Mar- Martinboro, uh, about this conference and told him he should get his ass up to the steamboat. And Larry came up and then encouraged some of his colleagues to come. And the outgrowth of that is the Southern Hemisphere Steamboat Conference, which yeah. I attended once. Yeah.
1: Have you attended? Yeah, I did once. Yeah, No, and uh, I mean, there, there, there are outposts of steamboat in Australia and two different places in New Zealand that oh, alternate them at right. this point. But the Steamboat Conference is still going on in yes. in, in Steamboat yeah. as well every summer, and uh, probably now close to a third generation of <laughs> winemakers are going through this, yes, learning techniques. But just as importantly, learning what it means to be a Pinot Noir maker in Oregon or in the U.S. and the collaboration that is encouraged. Uh, in that universe,
2: yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that is. I was all of us were kind of worried. I know that um, um, Mike Richmond and Larry, as uh, a sidekick, Larry. Yeah, I know. Any, anyway, several of the early people from the uh, industry came to the first conference after Stephen Carey had died, mm-hmm. and. Uh, sort of wanted to make sure that the younguns were uh, felt comfortable going on, and they took it over and have been running it. Yeah, which is wonderful. Yeah, yeah.
1: No, it's pretty cool. So we got you to buying this vineyard. Yes, yeah. and even building this winery. This winery, or this barn, as everybody refers to. It. <laughs> What were those early years of being industry like? Who were your friends in the industry? When we first came here, as you know,
2: I think there were 10 wineries in 76 when I got my bond, 10 in the state. Several of those were fruit and berry wineries. And there were two. So it was a very small community. And uh, Dick Ponzi and I were both uh, cheapskates. And we respected the need to economize. So we started sharing equipment. Yes. And I had a 1952 Ford pickup. And I had to, I remember driving from here to Ponzi's, which is about 40 miles. Uh, over at least one mountain. Yeah. I never went over uh, Bald Peak when I was carrying, because we had a labeler that we were sharing, and it was top-heavy. And uh, it fell out of the (laughs) pickup once. But anyway, uh, Dick and I shared the equipment. He'd pick it up, I'd pick it up. Then we bought a filter together and did that. So I had a lot of interaction with uh, Dick and Nancy and the two girls um, and Mikael. And so that was uh, um, real close. And then while Corey was around... Curry was part of the group. <clears throat> the, the, the Willamette, North Willamette, Weingor's group met at the Tigard Fire Hall for 10 years maybe, but in that early period prior to 1980, almost everybody was there. And then after the meetings, uh, sort of a hardcore group would go to the tavern across the street. But... Uh, <laughs> Interesting thing, I think it was probably 1980 or maybe we all cheered because it was the first time that the wine group could drink Oregon wine at a meeting. Because prior to that, Ponzi, uh, Lett, uh, Curry, Erath, they, they they had such small amounts of wine that being able to buy a bottle from them was a big deal, and they weren't about to come and give it away to their colleagues when they were trying to do it. So we were always drinking California jug wine. And then one year, finally, the industry got big enough that somebody was willing to sell us the Oregon (laughs) wine so the Oregon winemakers could drink it. Uh, But anyway, uh, Corey uh, and I... uh, Jerry Preston, while he was still around for several years, um, Erath, I think, we we tended to drink a little more than some of the other people,
1: and so we sort of you were helping the economy of Tiger. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, and so I got to know them. Uh, I didn't really meet meet you in formal sense until you were a waiter at Lomelette.
1: I've conveniently forgotten a visit that you paid to Lomlet with a number of other vintners, but you,
2: you told me about that. Yeah, we were, uh, I can't remember, there must have been a growers meeting or I was on the, the agriculture committee with Gary Fuqua, it may have been in that group. Uh, so I got to... Uh, Knows some several growers. Uh, Gary was the chairman, but anyway, uh, it was a group of us, and Omelette was the hot restaurant in town, and so we managed to get a a reservation. And we had this incredibly neat waiter who was also one of our colleagues in the industry, you. And uh, it was uh, a mark of the cooperation of the industry that you said, guys. I I can't I can't serve you dessert because, you know we're packed and and I got another group coming in. Would Would you mind if you just went and had dessert someplace
1: else? And we all said,
2: okay, David,
1: we'll do it for sake of industry cooperation. Well, I had I had a bunch of Oregon wines on the list at that point, so I had some leverage. Yes, yes, yeah, <laughs> yes,
2: a lot of leverage.
1: So this planting, this winery... Yes. ...were the first in this region. Yes. And uh, this region, what's more formally known as the Amity Hills at, at this end, and then across the road, the rest of the Eola Hills, mm-hmm. are the, is the Yola Amity Hills, mm-hmm. AVA, Viticultural mm-hmm. Area. Was that... I mean, in the beginning... There weren't a lot of people south of McMinnville planting grapes. No, there, there, um, there weren't. Uh,
2: the, um, the first person was Don Byard. He planted, and then uh, I think he went in in seventy-eight over near where it is now um, uh, Brooks Winery. Oh, yeah. Um, in fact, Brooks yeah. Has, yeah. has bought his his vineyard. Yeah. Um, And Don was very active. He started a little group, mainly of growers, that would meet once a month. Still going on. Uh, So that was a... uh, But it wasn't restricted to this AVA, but most of the people were from around... It was was more Salem-centric than... (laughs) Right. Yeah, because the the big plantings were Bethel Heights and then O'Connor... Pat, Pat and Patty O'Connor planted that vineyard, which is now uh, Zenith. Zenith Vineyards. And so they had that large group and then uh, witness tree over on the side. And uh, what's now um, Christum, Christum. Yeah. it was first planted by a Californian. Yeah, California winery cousin. Yeah, anyway, uh, they were only there for a couple of years, but as you you said, most of that and it was Canary Hill, also down there, uh Dick and Nancy, so that most of the focus was on the other side of this road right. um, and and it was later that people started planning on the Woodland Heights on the other end here, and then uh. Kristen Hill was planted over here, but the vast majority was there. And the the Castiles and uh, Janice and I spent a lot of time together. Um, and then Vicki and I, we were very close because Marilyn and Ted Castile both were at the University of Washington at the same time I was working there. Ted, Marilyn was in the student... Activities department. Sure, I thought she was in the dean's office, but anyway, it, anyway, yeah. And then and Terry was the head of some students' organization, and, and was, I was regarded as the enemy, the administrative spy. <laughs> but uh, when we came down here, we spent a lot of time together, and I think I sort of helped mentor them because I had more experience in winemaking. Of course, Ted became an incredible uh, grower. Terry became a good winemaker, and his son is now there. But they, we that was a
1: north-south coalition. Don, uh, yeah. You know, that reminds me, you said earlier that you had the experience at AV making wine, and so you arrived with a certain confidence in winemaking, yeah. but not necessarily in grape growing. <laughs> How did you acquire expertise in the field of viticulture? Well,
2: I think like most of my colleagues in the industry, we learned by making mistakes. And when you thought you'd made every mistake you could make, there was always a new one that showed up. I uh, have a vivid memory, David. We had a D2 cat that Jerry had uh, that we used for farming. And uh, back then, you had a pony motor, and you had to get the pony motor gasoline started. And then that motor turned over the diesel. And I still remember being out there in the field and trying to push that damn clutch and get this and cursing to high hell <laughs> but I got it going and my brother who had always been kind of mechanically oriented when he heard that I was down here working and working on equipment and getting things to run he was flabbergasted
1: that that God. there was any 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 level of success at all you mean well
2: we, we had grapes. <laughs> we had grapes. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we, uh, we got the job done finally. Yeah. I mean, when we arrived, it was May, right? The vineyard hadn't been pruned. <laughs> so how did it get pruned? Me and Janice, we pruned it. Following what? Jerry... Jerry Preston came over and helped us. He was our major tutor. <laughs> You'll love this, dude. So Jerry comes over. I think we'd been here two, maybe three weeks. He comes over and he says, hi, Mer. What What's going on? I noticed the vineyard isn't pruned yet. And I said, Jerry, it's raining like hell out there. I'm waiting for the rain to stop. Jared Jared was laughing so hard (laughs) you dumb dumb ass you usually prune your vineyard when it's snowing or raining in the winter not in the middle of May get yourself some rain gear and get your ass out there (laughs) and uh, I wouldn't say some of my fondest memories but some of my most vivid memories are kneeling next to a grape plant in the mud with the rain coming down.
1: So at at meetings of the wine group, whatever, organization it was, whether it was at the fire station or subsequent to that, there was always a, there there was likely to be something that would raise your ire, that would get you really pissed off. And we all lived in horror of that, because we never knew where, what it would be, or when it would be or what direction it would go. And inevitably, perhaps not every meeting, perhaps I'm exaggerating a bit. Probably. But it it seemed like you had a strong focus of what was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. And if that was being trespassed upon,
2: uh-huh. um
1: there were there was a need for correction. Well,
2: you you're right. I sort of um, was regarded as the volcano and it's a little 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 sad because you know when you become the volcano then uh people instead of listening to what you're saying just say oh that's myron the volcano. And uh I'm trying to think of a a, a real specific thing because I know I'd get ticked off at little things. At the moment, I'm blocking. Of course, uh, I was always ranting and raving about the oak levels and the wine. And uh, another thing may have been there were efforts underway, which I was very supportive of, to get Oregon was bifurcated. There was from Eugene north and Roseburg south, and near the twine could meet. And even when we had, the, well, we started out with the wine advice. No, what was it? The table
1: wine research. Advisory. Table
2: wine of advisory research, and so forth. We always had this conflict, and I I felt very strongly that we needed to become one one group, and I probably um, was fairly vocal at the people. Because there were several of them, who said those guys down there don't know anything about wine. Their their, their association is just to get together and get have have wine and drink and have dinners. They're not focused on like we are on important issues to the wine world. Uh, and this is, some of them were very condescending. So. That was something that I spoke up about. when, um, And then when I was on the Wine Advisory Board, after we had formed a united thing and so forth, I was very vocal with my colleagues from the South when uh, they were being short-sighted that I felt they were being short-sighted and not... They were sacrificing things that were good for the overall state because it wasn't beneficial enough to them. And I got in some fairly strong arguments about that. But yeah, you know, I'm, I'm kind of a volatile guy and uh, I tend to get emotional about things and sound off.
1: Well, I th- I think on balance, though, that helped keep issues in discussion mm-hmm. that might otherwise have been papered over and not necessarily resolved. Well, I hope so. I
2: you know I I was a very active member of the wine community. I can't remember when I first got on the. Well, I was with Gary Fuqua on the Agricultural Research Committee, which in the earlier years we were all focused on improving how do we improve grape growing and and things and we were working with osu and i uh was part of uh, barney's barney watson the osu wine uh, advisor at that time his uh, winemaker group that tasted his experimental wines and gave him feedback and barney and i were really good
1: friends you started I mean when you, you first bought this vineyard, Janice was your partner yes um that lasted a while and eventually Janice found other things and and eventually you and Vicky became partners and got married and it was twenty four years in between well i i don't want to I don't want to be too specific here but um one of the things that i'm seeing as we're talking to this this group of 10 wineries is in yamhill county women ought to, often had to sort of fend for themselves in this wine business that the guys were typically the winemakers were often involved in the grape growing as well and it didn't leave at least initially a clear role for women mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm happy to say that that's a very changed universe uh, today. But Mm -hmm. in the beginning, was in in the very beginning for you, was Janice actively involved in pushing forward all the work at Amity? Uh,
2: Yes. But the problem was, um, as I said, we came down with, I had $10,000. And uh, after our, our unemployment ran out, we didn't have any money. And, you know, every, it's one of the traits. You, you were a waiter. Ponzi was in teaching. Yep. Erath was uh, working for electronics. Uh, Volstek, the same. Um, most of us were small wineries, had minimal resources and had to work. And um, so Janice got a, got a good-paying job. And I had to find a job that would allow me the flexibility to be a wine grower. And so I ended up taking a job with uh, the unemployment office. But Janice was the breadwinner in the family. She brought in the steady income. And as I said, in the, the early years, she was out there pruning with me and, and so forth. And uh, active in that kind of thing. And once Vicky, I met Vicky in uh, September of 1980, and uh, she is uh, fairly uh, aggressive. I guess isn't a description assertive. Assertive. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. If we say aggressive about a woman, it it's a wrong. Uh, a very assertive woman, and she became quickly involved uh, in uh, the. Sort of the marketing side, she was involved in the founding of IPNC, worked with that for, for, for several years.
1: And she was still working in medicine
2: as well, yes. right? Yeah, she was a nurse. Yeah. Um, every time I'd say, ah, she's got a full-time job, lots of money coming in, she would come and go back to school. <laughs> so... Uh, but she, she was uh, not in... Well, I, I take that back because she, she had a laboratory experience from being a nurse, and uh, so she was did the lab work, oh, well. a lot of lab work here for me, and she had a very good palate and was involved in the bl- blending decisions. And as I say, she... Uh, um, well, you know, we we, we had the first <clears throat> big wine festivals. I was sort of a an outlier in that I wanted to reach out to the common man, you know. So we had the Nouveau festival where we took a barrel of Nouveau to McCormick and Smiths, and and that, and then it ended up traveling all over the place. And she helped organize that. Did a lot of our um, publicity and so forth, our summer solstice wine festival. Uh, and we had a winter solstice festival for a few years. Um, she worked on those.
1: You know, we had skipped over the Nouveau innovation. Yes. Because that came before the Gamay, right?
2: Yes. It came in 1976. The first point I made was, really? a, was a Nouveau. And
1: had you had experience at AV with that, or did that, was that just because?
2: Well, it's interesting, Dave. When, when I bought the vineyard from Jerry Preston, he had a label all set. It said Beaujolais on it. I don't know whether I've still got it. And this was back when Beaujolais was being used all over the place. Well, it couldn't have been used that way, but yeah. Well, this was before we had our labeling.
1: No, I mean, even then it wouldn't have been, I don't think.
2: They were using it in California all over. Yeah, with Gamay, yeah. No, not with Gamay. Really? They were calling wines Beaujolais? Yeah, but they had Napa Gamay and so forth. Anyway, anyway to make a long story short, I needed as I said I did, I was financially strapped all the time and I needed cash flow. And so I said if we make a wine that we can release in November, we can have sales immediately and get cash. And so I was focused on that and the grapes that were in this vineyard were labeled Gamay Beaujolais. You know, you know the yeah, yeah, yeah. this. It's the upright clone of Pinot. Right. But uh, there's, uh, uh, Rex Hill made a uh, a Gamay because one of the growers that I sold cuttings to thought that the upright clone was Beaujolais, so it was Gamay. And so forth, but uh, that's why I, that's why how I got into it, uh, was like uh, And it must have worked It did, it did It also I gotta tell you this I, uh, the, uh, want a little more wine? Go, pour yourself um, I think I've told you this, that uh, that, which arose by any other name will smell as sweet but it won't get the same amount of money. I made Nouveau, and it was a nice, fresh wine, and I could have brought a bottle of Nouveau, and it holds up. But it was regarded like the French Nouveau that it was drinking it after Christmas was sort of... Past its time. Past its time, and uh, as my production of it got a little higher, it took longer to sell and, and so forth. My friend Jim Berno, I don't know how Willamette many Willamette Valley vineyards. What Willamette Valley Willamette vineyards? Valley vineyards released a whole cluster Pinot Noir, exactly the same thing that I was doing with Nouveau. I think the highest price my Nouveau ever got to was twelve bucks. It was mainly around ten. He came out with a whole cluster Pinot Noir at twenty or twenty-two dollars a bottle, sold like hotcakes. You know, you'd sell out of it. In 1994, one of the best vintages in the last century, uh, I got a call from my distributor in August saying I had to take back Nouveau, my 94 Nouveau, because they had a pallet and it was August and they couldn't sell it. And it was incredible wine. It was one of the best ones I'd made. But if you rename it... Yeah. If I had, I just stopped making it. I said, "If so," and I had Gamay by then, and but I didn't. You know the thing about Gamay in Oregon as opposed to Beaujolais is that Gamay is a later ripening grape, almost a week, ten days after Pinot, and uh, it often. Wouldn't be done. Wouldn't maybe even have started Malalactic by November 21st, and November 21st, as you know, was the date that the French released their Nouveau. They've actually changed it to the third Thursday in November. If you didn't have your Nouveau out in the market on that day with the stuff, you were you lost a third to a half your sales. Mm-hmm. And so I couldn't... When, I, when Gamay came along, I didn't want to do it because I was still making Nouveau and I didn't want two Nouveaus. And secondly, the style of Beaujolais I like the most is Beaujolais Village. Um, I, I I tend to think that some of the Grand crews in Beaujolais are sort of trying to make Pinot Noir using Gamay. And... I like Gamay for a luscious, easy-drinking wine. I, I remember one of the things you asked me that we hadn't covered, and I wanted to cover it because I want to talk about my friend's winery, is you said, why did I keep going back to Turkey after, uh, after I was there in 66? And the uh, simple answer is I had good friends there. But it later became... Uh, intertwined with the Turkish wine industry. My, uh, I graduated, I was attended Ankara College, which was a, a prep school in Ankara that taught classes in English and Turkish. And I am an alumni of that. And I went to some of our reunions and at one of the reunions, I found out that two other of my colleagues, both Turks, well, one's a Turk, lives in the United States, I think he's now an American citizen, had wineries. And so suddenly, here, here was this oblique connection. And this this, this label, Selendi, is made by Akin Onger, and arkan and i have become good friends um and he makes lovely wine and i visited his his vineyard and uh
1: and is that in the, there's a when i was in turkey a couple of years ago uh, we were only in istanbul and we we had a lot of wine particularly from the european part of turkey right, right. But a, about, a lot of gamay yeah yeah but the the big region is the big fruit region in Asia Minor. And I can't remember the name of it, but it is. A I, I was trying to remember that this morning when I
2: was typing all the notes for this. Uh, but uh, it's, it's north uh, and east of uh, Ankara. I was going to bring a bottle of Turkish wine for us to open, and I forgot. But there's a Turkish white grape called Narenje that is absolutely fantastic. You were talking about me, and I tried to find it, but it isn't in the United States. And uh, so otherwise, I would have planted it because it makes very, very nice wine. And it's there, they grow that grape, and then there's two uh, native Turkish red grapes that are. I don't remember their names, unfortunately. That are uh, quite nice. I guess we've sort of hit my work as an innovator with the gamay, and also the other, the one other real major innovation I made: the first organic wine. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, and well, uh,
1: I mean, I, I kind of, from today's position, it seems like a perfectly normal thing. Uh-huh. But when you did it, it was not, not, and. Why did you do it? Okay, it's
2: it's interesting. It's sort of one of those happy accidents. We we bought our present home in 1987 and we had about 5 acres of Italian prunes on the place. And in in either late 87 or early 88 I went over to my neighbor who had been farming prunes since 1928. Uh, And I said, Adi, say, um, could you tell me what the market price is for prunes? And he said, market price? Son, if you don't have a contract with a cannery, you don't sell your prunes. I said, what? I said, well, you have a contract with a thing. You've been here since 28. Son, my cannery closed, and now I'm in the same state that if they need my prunes, they do. If they don't, they just drop on the ground. So I said, oh, bullshit, I'm not going to... I don't want to deal with that. And I thought the organic movement was starting, and I thought, I wonder if there's a market for organic prunes because my orchard had been untouched for several years, many years, and so I could qualify as an organic uh, orchard right away. I didn't have to wait three years. So I went in and got certified as a orchard and found a way to sell my prunes for a while. And so I was talking about that. I was buying Grapes from Bill Cattrell. Uh Bill and Tom Catrell have a vineyard over here. It's one of the first vineyards planted uh, probably around the time Byard was planting. And he had, they have always farmed organically. And Vicki said to me, well, look, you've you got a source of organic grapes. Why don't you make an organic wine? So we... Uh, we did in 1990, uh, but it's mainly focused on the fact that it had no sulfites in it. What I call the environmental fascists um, were said, well, if you use sulfur dioxide in your process back then, you can't call it organic. They've changed. Um, but... Uh, so we said, well, what the hell? We'll try making the wine without any sulfite. So we made it. And when we got done, we sent it to uh, the B A T F. Was doing tests on wine back then, and uh, the, that's the federal government's labeled people. Um, and we sent it to a commercial lab, and they both showed no detectable sulfite. So we made the name the wine Eco Wine. Uh, and then said sulfite-free pinot for eight years before the feds said, I'm sorry, we've given you permission for eight years, but you can't use it anymore. (laughs) So anyway, so that's how I got into the organic thing. And in the early years, the main selling point, Dave, was that it was sulfite-free because all these people who think they are allergic— you know, And the ones who are allergic, my God, they buy cases of it. And selling it as an organic, you'd go into a wine shop and say you had an organic wine and they would, oh. And I remember when we were getting ready to release that wine, I and a bunch of friends went out and got every organic wine we could find. Some of them were you know, you pick up the bottle and there was clouds. of, You know, the, I don't think one of them was drinkable. And I'm pretty liberal in what I'll drink if the occasion. So it was, it was horrendous. And uh, now organic is
1: chic and long, long journey. Yeah. But you were the first to do that. Mm -hmm. What else did I leave out?
2: Oh, my innovations.
1: That was one. Yeah, the
2: organic wine was one. Gamay was another. But one of the most interesting ones is uh I was responsible for uh, floating lids becoming uh available in the industry i JV Northwest do you remember them yep they uh were <coughs> bandsaw come uh, originally it was another company the owners of JV Northwest left that made bandsaws for the lumber industry. And these guys had come out and talked to me and said, you know, the lumber industry is sort of going down. We need to find something else. And I said, why don't you make a wine tank with a floating lid? And they they made their first tank for me. And uh, then they went out and, and promoted it. Scott Henry, it turns out, had heard about it in California, and he was using them too, but... I sort of—that's one of my uh, promotions. Yeah, no,
1: we bought no small number of them.
2: Yeah, and uh, let's see what else. Oh, the Oregon Wine Tasting Room.
1: That yes, that that, that actually is a pretty important piece of the story.
2: Yes, um, and I started the Oregon Wine Tasting Room for two reasons. One, back in 1980, I was selling my wine so fast that I, I didn't need another tasting room to sell it. And I can't remember if it was Vicki or so forth, but we got this idea, well, why don't we open a tasting room for all Oregon wines? And then, you know, your wine will just be a minor part of it and you can get some more income. So I went down and talked to Gary Lawrence in 1980.
1: Jerry Lawrence
2: had a art gallery. Yes, an art gallery on Highway 18 at Bellevue. And uh, he said yes and gave me this little room. And uh, I hired uh, uh, Patrick McGillicott. And the rest is sort of history. Patrick became the face of the Oregon Wine Tasting Room. But at one time, Dave... Uh, in those early years, probably 80, maybe up to 85, we, we had every Oregon wine that was, that was selling outside their tasting room. And we did a lot of promotion and a lot of wine writers stopped by there and a lot of good things happened for,
1: for people. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I mean, at one point it was, it was almost a monopoly if you wanted to actually taste what was going on. That's where you have to go. Right. That's right. Because so many, particularly in Yamil County, there weren't a lot of wineries with their own tasting room. Right. Washington County, a bit more. But yeah. further away from Portland, thinking was, um, you know, that's another business. Can you afford to be in it? So we really out, our tasting room was your tasting
2: room. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that worked for for quite a while. Are we going to open a bottle of your wine or not? you
1: want to try our Gamay? Well,
2: I would love to.
1: Well, I'll bring this out and we'll hand it over. So we're... Do you want to... So you, you made the first Gamay. I mean, yeah. I was responsible for those plants coming into the country. Yes. But we never, other than just the little clonal block, we never really did much and not always went into our Pinot. Yeah. But one year in 2007, we made a Gamay Noir. I don't remember it being great, but if you would open that, I think we should okay. try it. Got it. Nice. Okay. I've different. been shaking this up for two days, so who knows? It's a little different color. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Why didn't you guys get excited about gamay?
1: I I don't know. I partly because we didn't have that much planted. I mean, we had. what would have been uh, like sixty plants or sixty-five. I don't know. I mean, I can imagine a winery that just makes gamay and pinot blanc. Mm -hmm. I mean, that'd be a cool winery if you didn't have enough. If you didn't have a lot of overhead and you could get away with prices in the 20s Mm -hmm. um, and and stay alive. It's pretty good. Um, Actually, yours is slightly richer in the middle than this. Uh One of the interesting things to me is people always ask, why don't you try this variety? Why don't you try that variety? Why why do you have so much Pinot Noir planted? Uh, Wouldn't it be better to have a bunch of different grape varieties? Yes. And, And there is some logic to that, but but you're you come from the Burgundian tradition, so. Well, maybe I don't. Uh, yeah, come on, Dave. But but the other the other piece is, look at all the work that it's taken, on our parts to make Pinot a success. Mm-hmm. I mean, just the steamboat conferences and all the time that we meet, as as, as small groups talking about Pinot. Oh. When we started doing. Something like the Steamboat Conference for Chardonnay five years ago, the quality of Chardonnay shot up because suddenly everybody was seeing each other's, what they were trying and they were stealing the best stuff. Uh-huh. And and so that instantly changed. Well, we've never done it with Gamay. We've never done it with Pinot Blanc. We've never done it, I mean, a couple of times people have tried it with Riesling, but uh-huh. all these other varieties don't don't have the, the focus and striving for quality mm-hmm. that we we've had since 1979 with Pinot Noir. 79 first well the first steaming pe- the first steamboat right. where I mean obviously it was before that in terms right. of people planning it
2: right yeah yeah but, but they um, you know the uh, the thing that distinguished the northern oregon group from the southern oregon group way back when i arrived is almost every one of our meetings was technical there was always something on how to how to make it better how to grow it better and so forth and uh, i think that uh, uh, we focused on it but i uh, i think you're right that steamboat was an incredible wonderful thing and then for for helping Pinot Noir become a thing, the IPNC was... Yep.
1: International Pinot Noir Celebration.
2: Yeah, it just was a brilliant idea. Yeah,
1: yeah. So, here we are, what are we, Sixty, fifty 50 years after you bought? 74. So not quite, Six, uh, 46 years. 48. 48 years. 46 years, you're 46 right. 46 years. Yeah. After you bought? Was it a success? Well,
2: you know, it's sort of what an incredible journey it's been. It's had its ups and it's had its downs, but it's been, uh, you know, the, the industry's full of really good people and the sense of cooperation. My, my brother made wine here and then went up to Washington and I remember him calling and complaining about something. I said, well, why don't you just go ask your neighbor to borrow a piece of equipment? Myron, this is not Oregon. <laughs> you know, and, you know, it's, just, it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. And it has been incredibly interesting to see us go from a bunch of urban refugees going back to the vineyard, most of us not knowing what the hell we were doing to an industry that is so successful that we can now get millionaires who can't afford Napa, but they can afford us, so they come up here. I mean, that's a, that's a whole different stage because the, in the early times, the people that came here were people who were passionate about making, growing grapes and making wine. They were mainly owner occupy, owner, where the owner and the winemaker or the owner and the vineyardist were the same person and that kind of thing. And so we've, we've made the transition. We've grown into a real industry, you know, um, where now, I would say probably them, well, maybe not by numbers. Let's say a large portion of the industry now has professional winemakers with an, an owner. And that's been a change, but I think it's just part of the maturation. And the. I'm, I'm happy I sold Amity when I did. Um, these folks that bought it, Union Wine Company, are... Incredible! I'm the winemaker and his wife Mandy are. Mandy's the one that did this garden, and I've gotten to know them, and and you know I got to know you a little bit, you know. I, as I tell people, I still remember you carrying your 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 daughter on a log over a river. <laughs>
1: <laughs> all, all, of us, all of us are going, damn that. <laughs> <Don't> drop, <Lizzie. laughs> it wasn't like it was deep water that no, she would have fallen into. But.
2: No, but yeah. it was, yeah, we were all there, and, and uh, that was part of the, the camaraderie. Where we'd go to steamboat, we'd work our butts off, and then we would go play, and in the evenings, drink wine and socialize. And I think steamboat, I think I went to every steamboat but one. Till
1: Steve died. Yeah. Um, thank you, sir. Thank you very much for today. Thank you for all your contributions to this industry that it is today. And uh, it's fun to be back here at Amity Vineyards, even just for this morning. Yeah. Then
2: thanks again for you for for doing this uh, multiple winery presentation of your fiftieth year. Yeah.
1: Yeah, we, I, I think we're very happy about
0: this. Thank you for listening to Founder Stories, the podcast. This episode was produced by Adelsheim Vineyard in partnership with House Below Productions. New episodes are released monthly, and you can find them on Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Visit our website, slash 50 years to watch full interviews of David Adelsheim with the other founders of the Willamette Valley wine industry. And join us as we pay homage to half a century of lofty dreams, pioneering spirits, and world-class wine.